you have your Bibles, if you would open them, please, to Genesis chapter 12. Genesis chapter 12. In the first 12 chapters of Genesis, we find three beginnings. First is the beginning of the human race in Adam. The second is a new beginning of the human race in Noah and his family. The third is the beginning of the chosen people of God, which is marked by the calling of a man named Abram, a man who would later be renamed Abraham, a man of faith and the father of those who believe, a man known as the friend of God. We are told at the beginning of chapter 12, in the first verse, the Lord had said to Abram, leave your country, your people, and your father's household, and go to the land I will show you. Which would seem to indicate, and Stephen confirms this in his speech before the Sanhedrin, that the Lord called him out of Mesopotamia, out of the Ur of the Chaldeans. But that he didn't quite leave Mesopotamia, and he went with his father, Terah, to Haran, and stayed there until his father died. It is interesting that Terah means delay, and Haran means parched. And so he sort of delayed there in Haran. But after his death, he does go to the land to which the Lord directed him. And as we saw last Sunday, Abram left the known, his country, his people, his father's household, for the unknown. The Lord had made to him at least five promises. In verses 2 and 3, chapter 12, I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you I will curse, and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. At least five times we hear an I will. And as I said last week, something we so easily forget, Abraham did not live to see most of these promises fulfilled but he did believe. Today, we will see a series of individuals and their contact in the life of Abram. On the church website, Dave posts the sermons, and uh, he gave this series a title, Trial and Grace, which, as we will see, is entirely appropriate. I'm not good at naming sermons, and so I think Dave has... uh, wisely chosen. Let's read verses 10 through 20 of chapter 12. Now there was a famine in the land, and Abram went down to Egypt to live there for a while because the famine was severe. And as he was about to enter Egypt, he said to his wife Sarai, I know what a beautiful woman you are. When the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me, but will let you live. Say you are my sister, so that I will be treated well for your sake, and my life will be spared because of you. When Abram came to Egypt, the Egyptians saw that she was a very beautiful woman. And when Pharaoh's officials saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh, and she was taken into his palace. He treated Abram well for her sake, and Abram acquired sheep and cattle, male and female donkeys, men servants and maidservants, and camels. But the Lord inflicted serious diseases on Pharaoh and his household because of Abram's wife, Sarai. So Pharaoh summoned Abram. What have you done to me? He said, why didn't you tell me she was your wife? 
Why did you say she is my sister, so that I took her to be my wife? Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. Then Pharaoh gave orders about Aram to his men, and they sent him on his way with his wife and everything he had. Several things to consider this passage. From all appearances, the promised land had failed Abram. Abram was told to go to a particular place, and now he goes to that place, and there is a severe famine. Has the promise failed? Has God failed him, bringing him to this place where there is this severe famine? What must Abram have thought? That the Lord had promised his offspring the land of Canaan, the land of famine at this point, a severe famine. There's not enough food. And so he goes to Egypt. Side note, this is the first time that Egypt is mentioned in the Bible. Later on, Egypt will be seen as dangerous. It's a place where the Hebrews were enslaved. Um, There are times when people are told, don't go to Egypt. But that's not the case here. Um, Let's not project backwards. Um, Egypt was, in fact, a very logical choice. It was the breadbasket of the ancient world because of its abundant grain crops. And so on some level, it makes a lot of sense for Abram to leave Palestine and to go to Egypt. But there is nothing to indicate that Abram consulted the Lord. In fact, what we find is he went on his own initiative. And you might say, well, Damon, the Bible doesn't tell us everything, so maybe it is possible that he said. But I would say no, that he did not. Because what we find is that he transitions from faith, believing God, leaving the known for the unknown. He transitions to fear. And now he is afraid. He goes from the known to the unknown, and now he goes from where he is to what he thinks he knows. Because he tells Sarai, listen, if, if we go down to Egypt, you're a beautiful woman, and they're going to say, hey, uh, let's kill him so that we can get the wife. He imagines a danger that, in fact, probably is not there. This is a trial. This is a testing of his faith. And rather than trusting in God, who called him, he comes up with his own solution. Let's go to Egypt. Which, again, on the face of it, is not a bad decision, but there is no sense that, in fact, God had said, listen, you can go to Egypt during the time of this severe famine. He sought relief from his difficulties rather than to profit from this trial that God had brought across his path. The transition from faith to fear is seen in the request he made of Sarai. He starts out with a compliment. Sarah, I know what a beautiful woman you are. Okay. Then he says, you know, the Egyptians are going to see that you're beautiful and they're going to kill me. So for my sake, you know, let them do to you whatever they want so they don't kill me. That Abraham is fearful is seen in that it leads to deception. Faith should not lead us to deception, but fear certainly does. And this fear leads him to endanger the honor of the one closest to him, his own wife. On the one hand, though, there are elements 
of truth to his request. She is a beautiful woman. Because when the Egyptians see her, they're like, this is a beautiful woman. But then there is sort of a fudging with the truth. We will see when we get to chapter 20 that Sarai is actually his half-sister. They have the same father, not the same mother. So it's sort of a half-truth, which I think boils down to, to being a lie. So, in fact, when they go, they see she's a beautiful woman. He's my brother. And so they take her and bring him to Pharaoh's palace to be his wife or one of his many wives. Imagine Sarah's humiliation at having been abandoned by her husband and made a part of a foreign ruler's household, his harem. But God is gracious and he intervenes. The Lord inflicted serious diseases on Pharaoh and his household because of Abram's wife, Sarai. Somehow, and we're not told how, Pharaoh figured out that these diseases, some translations have the word plagues, have come on him and his household, on him personally and his household, because he took a man's wife. He took Sarai from Abram. Somehow he finds out the truth. And he gives Sarai back to Abram and basically deports them. Take her and go, he says. By the way, as I was going through this, I was wondering why the Lord did not inflict plagues or diseases on Abram. He's the person who lied, this deceived, but it is Pharaoh who suffers. I think verse number 16, at least for me, is perhaps one of the more important verses in this passage because Abram's Abram's failure is compounded by what we read in this verse. He treated Abram well, that is Pharaoh did, for her sake, and Abram acquired sheep and cattle, male and female donkeys, men servants and maid servants and camels. You see, it's not bad enough that Abram let another man take his wife. He lied about her. He let another man take her. But now he profits from it. He takes what Pharaoh has to give. And if you read the rest of the chapter, he doesn't give it back. He basically sells Sarai. He was treated well and he was gifted But one of God's promises is that God would bless him. It seems at this point that Abram is relying on Pharaoh's generosity rather than God's promises. This is an important point, and it'll come up again later on in the sermon. Keep it in the back of your mind. The second person, the first is Pharaoh. The second person is Lot. In chapter 13, we find that Abram and his nephew Lot, Lot had come with him to the promised land, uh, separate. Um, Did Abram learn his lesson? I would think that he did. Look at the first four verses of chapter 13. So Abram went up from Egypt to the Negev with his wife and everything he had, and Lot went with him. 
Abram became very wealthy in livestock and in silver and gold. From the Negev, he went from place to place until he came to Bethel, to the place between Bethel and Ai, where he, his tent had been earlier and where he had first built an altar. There, Abram called on the name of the Lord. Don't want to inject humor into the sermon, but boy, what kind of a trip must that have been with Sarai from Egypt going back? Um, you know, Peter tells us that Sarah called Abraham Lord or Master. I can think of a few other words um, that she might have called him on the journey, but they go back. He does go back to where God had told him to go initially, and he returns to Bethel. We are told that he prospers, that God, in fact, is blessing him, but it doesn't shift his focus, which is amazing. He still realizes that it is God who is doing this. And so he goes to Bethel where he had built an altar, and there he calls on the name of the Lord. First is the trial, the test, and then comes grace. And this grace is seen in the fact of renewed obedience. He goes and he worships and he calls on the name of the Lord. This in spite of the fact that once again it seemed that the promised land has failed him. Look if you would at verses 5 and 6. Now Lot who was moving about with Abram also had flocks and herds and tents. But the land could not support them while they stayed together, for their possessions were so great that they were not able to stay together. I don't doubt that they had a lot, but the land cannot support two men and what they own? Sure, they both have a lot of flocks and herds, but is not Palestine enough for them? We are told, after all, that the Canaanites and the Perizzites live there, so it's not like it's not like it's only Abram and Lot there. There are other people there. But somehow the land cannot support them. So here comes the test. Verse 7. And quarreling arose between Abram's herdsmen and the herdsmen of Lot. The Canaanites and Perizzites were also living in the land at that time. So Abram said to Lot, Let's not have any quarreling between you and me, or between your herdsmen and mine, for we are brothers. Is not the whole land before you. Let's part company. If you go to the left, I'll go to the right. If you go to the right, I'll go to the left. This is amazing. Abram is the uncle. He's the older relative, okay? He should have first choice. I think in every culture, the older one gets to choose, and he is the uncle. But the Lord promised him the land. To your offspring, I will give this land. He graciously waves his rights to his nephew. He gives, Lot, he gives Lot the first choice. And what we find is that Lot fails the test. Verse 10. Lot looked up and saw the whole plain of the Jordan was, that the whole plain of the Jordan was well watered like the garden of the Lord. That is Eden. Like the land of Egypt toward Zoar. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself the whole plain of the Jordan and set out toward the east. 
the two men parted company. Abram lived in the land of Canaan, while Lot lived among the cities on the plain and pitched his tents near Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were wicked and were sinning greatly against the Lord. In the same way that going to Egypt seemed like a rational, a reasonable solution to deal with the famine, so the plain of Jordan, which was well watered, um, is like the Garden of Eden, this seems like a good choice. But Lot chose the whole plain of the Jordan. He chose to live near a wicked people. He pitched his tent near Sodom. What we find is that unlike his uncle, Lot did not live by faith, but by sight. We're told that he looked up and saw. He looked around and doing a survey visually. He's like, yeah, this is, this is the place that I want to go. Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians, we live by faith, not by sight. Not so with Lot. But what about Abram? Abram allowed Lot the seemingly better location. All things being equal, well-watered, Canaan is okay, but it's not like the Jordan plain. But he stayed where he was because he believed the promises of God, which are expanded and fleshed out. Look at verse number 14. The Lord said to Abram after Lot had parted from him. So Lot got the good part of the deal, seemingly. The Lord speaks to Abram. Lift up your eyes from where you are and look north and south, east and west. All the land that you see I will give to you and your offspring forever. I will make your offspring like the dust of the earth, so that if anyone could count the dust, then your offspring could be counted. Go walk through the length and breadth of the land, for I am giving it to you. So Abram moved his tents and went to live near the great trees of Mamre at Hebron, where he built an altar to the Lord. God says, listen, I will take care of you. I will take care of you and your descendants. Seemingly, Lot had taken care of himself and left Abram with the short end of the stick. But the Lord says to him, listen, I will take care of you. And Abram responds in worship. You see this time and time again. He built an altar to the Lord. What follows in the next chapter tells us that Abram made the right choice and that Lot did not. Chapter 14. At this point, we come to historical background. And it's, it's actually more extended than what we usually find uh, in Genesis, but maybe in the rest of the Bible. Uh, it sets the, historic, the stage for what is about to happen, and then somehow Abram becomes involved. So, verse number one. At that time, Amraphel, king of Shinar, Ariok, king of Elisar, Kedoleomor, of king of Elam, and Tidal, king of Goem, went to war against Bern, king of Sodom, Bersha, king of Gomorrah, Shinab, king of Adma, Shemabur, king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is, Zoar. All these latter kings joined forces in the valley of Sidon, the Salt Sea. For twelve years they had been subject to Kedor Leomor, but in the thirteenth year they rebelled. 
In the 14th year, Kedor Laemer and the kings allied with him went out and defeated the Raphites at Ashtaroth and Karnaim, the Zuzites and Ham, and the Amites in Shavath Kiriathaim, and the Horites in the hill country of Seir as far as Elparan near the desert. Then they turned back and went to En Mishpat, that is Kadesh, and they conquered the whole territory of the Amalekites, as well as the Amorites who were living in Hazazon Tamar. Then the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Adma, the king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar, marched out and drew up their battle lines in the valley of Sidon against Kedolaomer, king of Edom, Tidal, king of Goem, Amraphel, king of Shinar, and Ariok, king of Elisar, four kings against five. Now the valley of Siddim was full of tar pits, and when the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, some of the men fell into them, and the rest fled into the hills. The four kings seized all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their food, then they went away. They also carried off Abram's lot, a nephew Lot, and his possessions since he was living in Sodom. So this is the background, and we're 12 verses to set the stage. There are five kings in the region who are subject to another king, that is Kedolaomer. I think I always struggle with this because I think if you're king, that's it, you're at the top. But in the, traditionally in the ancient world, you have kings of cities, but you have kings that are over them. Uh, among the Irish, these were known as the high king. He's the one who's over the other kings. And we sing this in Be Thou My Vision, High King of Heaven, the king who is over all kings. We open with uh, the hymn today, Come Thou Almighty King. He is the high king. Well, Kedolaomer, these, these five cities paid tribute to him. They did so for 12 years. And then they decided, yeah, we're not going to do that anymore. And in the 13th year, they rebelled. So the next year, the 14th year, Kedolaomer gets his buddies, three other kings, and they come against the people in Palestine. And initially, it isn't against these five kings, but against other people, and basically just take everybody out. I mean, it is a very successful uh, enterprise. Um, so these kings decide that they're going to come to the aid of these other people and they are, they are defeated Kedolaomer defeats them and he takes all that they have all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah all their food and then he goes home he's on his way home he went away they also carried off Lot and his possessions and this is how Abram enters into the story I don't know if you noticed something in verse number 12. Um, earlier we are told that Lot pitched his tents near Sodom. In verse number 12, he's living in Sodom. Okay, So he has now sort of assimilated into what is basically a wicked culture. He's living in Sodom, and that's why he and his possessions are taken away. So what does Abram do? Verse number 13. One who had escaped came and reported this to Abram the Hebrew. By the way, this is the first time the word Hebrew shows up in the Bible, and Abram is named as the Hebrew. Now Abram was living near the great trees of Mamre, the Amorite, a brother of Eshcol and Aner, all of whom were allied with Abram. 
So he had allies. It wasn't that everyone was against him since he was called by God. Um, he was, in fact, living at peace with the people around him. Uh, so when he hears this, verse number 14, when Abram heard that his relative had been taken captive, he called out the, 1300, uh, the, sorry, the 318 men born into his household, 318 trained men born into his household, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. Abram springs into action. His nephew has been taken. He is going to bring him back. He gathers 318 trained men born into his household. Now we begin to have a sense of how prosperous Abram was. I mean, he has 318 men who have been born by his servants into his household. Uh, Abram's doing rather well. Um, we will see later on, it isn't just the 318, though, that there are also his allies who are mentioned, that they go with him, but we're not told how many of them there were. One might say that this was either a brave move or a foolhardy move. Ketelamer et al. had enough fighting men to defeat the five rebel cities and everybody else, the Amalekites, the Amorites, they took them out. And he has 318 men. That's like an impressive number for one man. But in contrast to this victorious army, um, yeah, I don't know. Verse 15. During the night, Abram divided his men to attack them, and he routed them, pursuing them as far as Hobah, north of Damascus. He goes toward Dan, which is the northern part later on of the 12 tribes. And then he goes beyond Damascus. He goes to Damascus. He divides his men. He attacks Kedolamer and his army, and he defeats them. He routs them. Um, now, some might think that the small number of fighting men and dividing them into two or more, we're not told, simply divide them into various groups, is not a strategy for victory. But throughout the Old Testament, we are told of similar victories when God led his people into battle, such as the story of Gideon. Do you remember the story of Gideon? That he went against the Midianites and they blew the horn and said, listen, we're going to go take out the Midianites. And 32,000 men gathered. Uh, really, 32,000 seems impressive. There were 100 and 32,000 of the Midianites. So they're outnumbered four to one. But then God tells Gideon, yeah, you've got way too many men. So Gideon says, anyone who's scared and wants to go home, go home. 22,000 leave. So he's got 10,000. So it's like 13 to one now. And God's like, you still have too many people. And so they go through this test of drinking water from the river, and he ends up with 300 men. So now the odds are 440 to 1. And you know the story, Gideon won. So the 318 men of Abram, to us that may not seem a wise move to take on this victorious army, but in fact they did. And God gave them the victory. He gave Abram the victory. 
verse 16. He, that is Abram, recovered all the goods and brought back his relative Lot and his possessions together with the women and the other people. I would say on some sense this is not the test. This is not the trial. Now comes the test. Now comes the trial. Two different kings, Melchizedek and then the king of Sodom. This is the real test. The first person is Melchizedek. Look at verses 17 through 20. After Abram returned from defeating Kedolamer and the kings allied with him, the king of Sodom came out to meet him in the valley of Sheveth, that is the king's valley. Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. And he blessed Abram, saying, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, creator of heaven and earth. And he blessed, and blessed be God Most High, who delivered your enemies into your hand. Then Abram gave him a tenth of everything. Melchizedek is a fascinating character in scripture. We are told that he is the king of Salem. Salem means peace, shalom. It will later be known as Jerusalem. This means he was a Canaanite. Okay, He's not, if you wish, one of the chosen people. Abram is, Melchizedek is not. But he is a priest of God Most High. Seems strange. He brings wine and bread to Abram and his men. He then blesses Abram by God Most High, and he blessed God Most High. So many questions arise at this point. How can a Canaanite be a priest of God Most High? Which brings up an important point, sort of a side note, but an important one. What is Scripture? It is a revelation of God. And that is the purpose of Scripture, to reveal God. It doesn't tell us everything there is to know. What it does is it tells us the lineage of Jesus, the Messiah. So from Abraham to Isaac to Jacob, his sons, and so on. It doesn't mean that these are the only people, in my opinion, who worship God. And Melchizedek is a prime example of that. God has other people who worship him. It's not just Abram and his line. Abram and his line are important because it will lead to the Messiah, to Jesus. But there are other people as well who worship God. And Melchizedek is known as a priest of God Most High. Some might say, and some in fact have questioned, some have said, well, actually he was like a, a pagan priest. He wasn't really the priest of God Most High. Um, well, Psalm 110, a psalm of David, by the way. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. And then in Hebrews, there's an extended passage from chapter 6, verse 20 to chapter 7, verse 21. And it begins with these words. Jesus, who went before us, has entered on our behalf. He has become a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. That's why Melchizedek is mentioned. There are other things I think that could have been mentioned, but they don't tie to Jesus the Messiah, but Melchizedek does because he is a priest of God Most High. Jesus is prophet, priest, king. Prophet, you can be from any tribe. Priest, you have to be from the tribe of Levi. King, you have to be from the tribe of Judah. Well, you can't be from Levi and Judah. 
He's from Judah, but he is a priest after the order of Melchizedek. The passage continues, by the way, this is Hebrews 7, 1. This Melchizedek was king of Salem and priest of God Most High. He met Abraham returning from the defeat of the kings and blessed him, and Abram gave him a tenth of everything. First, his name means king of righteousness. That's what Melchizedek means, king of righteousness. Then also king of Salem means king of peace. Without father or mother, without genealogy, without beginning of days or end of life, like the Son of God, he remains a priest forever. What the writer of Hebrews is saying is that Melchizedek just sort of pops into the scene. We're not told where he came from. We're not told of his mom, his dad, his genealogy. And we're not told when he was born or when he died. So in a sense, he almost seems like this eternal character. No beginning of days, no end of days. But he is a priest of God Most High, and he blesses Abram. And Jesus is a priest after the order of Melchizedek. Not a small thing. What does Abram do? What is his response? Abram gave him a tenth of everything. Two things to consider here. First of all, it's been suggested, and I think it makes sense, that the amount... Uh, a tenth. Uh, King James has tithe, but most English translations have tenth. Points to an act of obligation and not piety. It's not like, oh, should I give him five percent, six percent? You know, the tenth was a very specified amount. Okay. Then, secondly, I would say, in my opinion, that the everything he gave him a tenth of everything was everything he had taken from the kings he defeated. That's important for his meeting with the second king. So Melchizedek blesses him and Abram gives him a tenth of everything. Now we come to the second king, the king of Sodom, whose approach and attitude are quite different. Um, it's more like, let's make a deal. Verse 21, the king of Sodom said to Abram, give me the people and keep the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have raised my hand to the Lord God most high, creator of heaven and earth, and have taken an oath that I will not accept that I will accept nothing belonging to you, not even a thread or the thong of a sandal, so that you will never be able to say, I made Abram rich. I will accept nothing but what my men have eaten and the share that belongs to the men who went with me to Anar, Eshkol, and Mamre. Let them have their share. Here is the test. The first test with Pharaoh, Abram failed. He took, here's Sarah, give me the goods. Okay. Now he defeats Kedolamer. He comes back with all this stuff and, and the king of Sodom's like, you can take it, I'll take the people, you take everything else. And Abram's like, no. I have raised my hand. I have sworn an oath. I will not take anything. It's not you who is going to prosper me. It is God, in fact, who will bless me and prosper me. It's a very different, situ uh, very different response than what we find when he was in Egypt. Someone might say, well, wait a minute. What about the tenth that he gave to Melchizedek? Um, it went to Melchizedek. It didn't stay with Abram. It went to Melchizedek. Okay. 
There's something else. Did you notice that Abram refers to God with the same language that Melchizedek used? God most high, creator of heaven and earth. I wonder, did Abram learn this from Melchizedek? He is now repeating what he hears from Melchizedek. I mean, when God revealed himself to Abram, he didn't like, okay, Abram, this is the deal. I'm a trinity, father, son, and spirit, okay? And I'm the creator, I'm the sustainer of all things. No, I think Abram had the barest amount of information. God said, go, I will take care of you. And he went. And now Melchizedek, priest of God most high, says, listen, God is the high one, the most high, and he is the creator. He is the creator of all things, of heaven and on earth. Abram will not take anything, but he allows his allies to be rewarded. The share that belongs to the men who are with me. He mentions three men particularly. Anner, Eshkol, and Mamre. Let them have their share. So there are three chapters here, or two and a half. We've seen three different tests and grace that comes at the end. Abram fails the first one big time. He is fueled by fear rather than faith. It leads to deception. He endangers the honor of his wife, but also the promises that God had made to him. And his failure, I think, is made even more evident by the fact that he took what Pharaoh gave him. But returning to the promised land, Abram goes to Bethel, where he had built an altar, and he calls on the name of the Lord. He failed the trial, the test, but then there is grace. God preserves Sarai, poor woman, uh, abandoned by her husband. God preserves her by inflicting Pharaoh and his household with plagues and diseases. He preserves Abram and he returns to the promised land. God is certainly gracious. The second test involves Lot, where they have to split up. The land cannot support them, which again seems strange. This is the promised land and God said he would take care of me and why can't the land support both of us? But he allows Lot to take the seemingly better choice. In faith, he trusts that God will take care of him. And in fact, God expands the promises made to him. Lift up your eyes from where you are and look north and south, east and west. All the land you see that you see, I will give to you and your offspring. And the result is that it leads Abram once again to worship he goes to the great trees at Mamre near Hebron, and there he builds an altar and calls on the name of the Lord. The third test isn't fighting against the kings, though that must, for me at least, have been a scary proposition. You have four kings that have basically decimated Palestine, and they're on their way home with everything they have. Um, you have 318 men, that's impressive, but not impressive enough, I think, to take on these armies. Um, but that's not the test, that's not the trial. The trial is what happens after he wins. It's oftentimes the case. It's not the crisis, it's what, how we respond after the crisis. Um, 
And he realizes that if he takes what the king of Sodom has offered him, it would allow someone other than God to take the credit for his prosperity, for what God had promised him. So he will not take anything from the king of Sodom. But to Melchizedek, he gives a tenth of everything. He gives, he does not take. And there is grace once again. And Melchizedek blessed Abram, saying, Blessed be Abram by God most high, creator of heaven and earth. And blessed be God most high, who delivered your enemies into your hand. Like Abram, our lives are filled with trials, tests. Like Abram, we oftentimes fail. But God is gracious. But there are times when by his grace we don't fail. If you wish, we pass the test. We live by faith, not by sight. And God is still gracious. In each case in Abram's life, he calls on the name of the Lord. He responds in worship. And by God's grace, that's what we should do as well. Let's pray together. Our Father, in many ways, it's hard for us to relate to Abram's situation. We have the internet, we have GPS, we have cell phones. We imagine that there is little that is unknown to us. And so, like Abram, we oftentimes make decisions which seem to be good and sound, reasonable, rational decisions, forgetting that, in fact, we should call on you. In fact, if Abram had called on you, you still might have sent him to Egypt. But he didn't. He lived in fear and not in faith. We begin our worship every Sunday by singing, I will not fear. I think it's easier sung than done. We thank you how Abram learned, how he did come to rely on you, willing to take what was seemingly the poorer of the two choices, letting his nephew get what seemed to be the better choice. And with 318 men going after a victorious king and his allies, we thank you for Melchizedek, priest of God Most High, and how he points ahead to the Lord Jesus is not a Levite, not a priest from the tribe of Levi, but in the order of Melchizedek, a king of righteousness. There's so much for us to learn. By your grace, may we take these things to heart and meditate on them. And as James says, may we be doers of the word and not hearers only.
I thank you for bringing us together today. We are told that there will be more rain. We pray that you would preserve us and our neighbors. Pray for those up north who have suffered the worst of it. May we be reminded that you are the creator of heaven and earth. This is your world. As we leave this place, may your spirit and grace go with us. And as we walk through the world in this this week, may we have a sense of your presence. That you're right with us every step of the way. If we would just pay attention and listen. We thank you for your love. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.